Good morning, church. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. If you're new with us, we've been studying through this last book of the Bible and most recently studying these seven letters to seven churches in in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. And uh, these seven churches, is addressed to seven churches to convey completeness because this is instruction that uh, the Lord knew we would need in the church uh, forever until he returned. And so it's no surprise then as we've studied uh, four of these already, we come to the fifth one, that we found them to be very applicable to where we are individually and as a congregation too. Now, Sardis is the city that's in view in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and Sardis uh, was uh, proud of its, of its identity as an impregnable military fortress, or so they thought until the, the Syrians and Persians invaded them because they quit watching the gates. They got that taken care of, and then they were secure again and took pride in it. It became a refuge for people fleeing from conflict, for instance, the Jews, when, uh, when Jerusalem was run over in AD 70 by Antiochus, Antiochus the Great, they fled to Sardis uh, to find refuge. Not only did they find refuge there, these Jewish people, these Jews fleeing persecution, uh, assimilated into the culture of Sardis. They melded in. They... they They uh, became a part, so much a part of the society that they showed no distinction. They They were respected. They were put on the city council, made council members. Apparently, the Christians have adopted the same attitude in the in, in Sardis, where there is really no distinction between the Christians, the Christian church, and the local culture. They figured out how to blend in, how not to raise a fuss, how not to draw attention, how to align with the appropriate social circles or guilds or political parties to keep their head just below the water and out of view. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like what the church of Jesus Christ can do today. And the question is, what does Jesus think about that? How does it make Jesus feel when Christians hold no distinction, when they don't stand out and offer and embody the true news, the good news, the best news? What does Jesus think about that? Well, he tells us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll know not at what hour I will come against you. 
Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Deep in the lush rainforest of South America is the, is the Brazilian walnut tree, known for its height, its magnificent size, its strength, its ability to withstand most harsh elements. There is one vulnerability it has, however. It's to the strangler fig. Strangler fig, a seed of a strangler fig gets planted by a bird or uh, nesting there or flying over, and it takes, it takes root in the, in the moss of the, of the tree or in the deep in the bark, and then it sends forth its tendrils, its shoots, and they, if they make it all the way to the rainforest floor and connect with the rich soil below, then it takes off. It takes off worse than kudzu. It strangles the life out of the, out of the tree, chokes it to death. But not until it has completely encased it, showing on the outside some evidence of life, evidence of vibrant life, but the form of a tree underneath it. So if you're walking through the rainforest and don't know any better, you come on a strangler fig encased Brazilian walnut tree and you say, there is life. But inside is death. Jesus has identified himself in chapter 1 of Revelation as the one who is, we're reminded of him here, who holds the seven spirits, the seven stars, the seven candles. They're all referring to the same thing. He holds the churches in his hand. And each one he takes up and he looks at it intimately. He turns it around inside out and he asks, where is life? Where is death? What is going well? What must change? What must be repented of for this church to remain in existence? He does that not only with churches, but he does it with individuals. He holds up your life and he says, what is alive and what is dead? And the simple point that he makes here is if you want to live, and anyone in their right mind would want to, and you want to live fully, you want to live eternally, then you must come to Jesus. You must come to him individually. You must come to him as a church. Well, that sounds easy enough, but what does it mean? What does it mean to come to Jesus? In this passage, what does it mean to come to Jesus for life? It means two things, to wake up and to walk. To wake up from your swoon, from your torpor, from your death, and to start walking like a live person, like a live church. Well, what does, what does he, how does he call us to life here? We're told in, in verse 2 that he knows this church, verse 1, he knows this church, he knows their works, he knows they have a reputation of being alive. He knows them intimately. <clears throat> he knows their reputation throughout, throughout uh, the known world. People might talk about that church at Sardis, old fifth church at Sardis. 
Uh, they're known for their international missions program. They have strong preaching. They have vibrant worship. The people are being added. They're givers. They do lots of good works. They are a strong, lively church. And Jesus looks at the same church and says, no, it's dead. Haunting, isn't it? Could it be that you think you are alive, but when Jesus holds you up, he says, no, you're dead? Could he hold up your church and say, you rest in your reputation, the reputation that others assign to you, but you're dead? Well, notice that Jesus doesn't say they are completely dead. This is almost like that line in The Princess Bride. They're only mostly dead. They say, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, what could he be referring to? We're reading somebody else's mail. We have to infer it, and we can infer it from the rest of Scripture. What is, what is a church supposed to do? What is a church supposed to be? We know that from Scripture, five things. It's supposed to worship. It's supposed to evangelize. It's supposed to be fellowship, discipleship, works of mercy. Now, it's hard to remember five things, so we boil them down to three things here. We just say worship, outreach, and discipleship, and we subsume mercy under outreach, and we subsume fellowship under, under discipleship. But it's those five things, and Jesus judges, do you have mask fuzz? Mask fuzz, sorry. Five things. <clears throat> Jesus looks at the church and he says, are there five things present? Well, there's a structure. Maybe there's a structure of five things. But they're not being done in love. They're not being done vibrantly. Some things are not being done at all. Discipleship is far from adequate here because they're not standing out for one. They're not being persecuted. They're blending in. Every other church is being, where Christians are living faithfully are being persecuted because, because uh, they're a threat to the status quo. They're not doing evangelism because they're not wanting to stand out. They're not wanting to bring people in. He says, I don't want you to do away with the functions of the church. I just want you to renew them in love. I want you to renew your worship in love. I want you to renew evangelism in love. I want you to renew fellowship and discipleship and mercy in love, love for me and love for others, love and care for their souls. And if that doesn't occur, if you don't wake up, he says, then I will find your works incomplete in the sight of my God. And in verse 3, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, he doesn't say I'm coming and when I get you, I'm going to throw you in hell. He just says, I'm going to come against you. Now, I've pastored three churches now that have all split. This one split many years ago. The other two churches, I came right after the split. I don't know this church as well now. And uh, we're, still, we're still learning each other. But looking back on those other churches farther back, listening to the people involved and so forth, those churches split over Moralism, legalism, racism, elitism in their theology. Those were a few of the issues. And, and they split because 
Jesus came like a thief in the night against them. There's, there's, you know, there's just like in any breakup of any relationship, there is, because sinners are involved, there's fault on both sides. What I can say has happened in those two churches, I would say this church as well, is that God purified, God winnowed, God uh, refined, and as a result, there are six healthy churches where there were three before. That's the way Presbyterians plant churches. We divide to multiply. Now, I don't think, I don't think we have a corner on that, actually. It is a serious thing. It's a very painful thing to go through a church split. But it is not that one should ever look at the other and say, well, it's, if you had done better, we wouldn't have. Jesus comes at a church that is failing to live have complete works, failing in profoundly in one or more of these areas, these commissions that he's given to us, and he says he comes against it. And if he's merciful, he will winnow, he will refine and restore. It's not that Jesus comes at a church and says, this is wrong with you, just because he loves pointing out what is wrong. He comes and he critiques us with his word because he loves us and because he knows that the church of Jesus Christ has the gospel, that for which the world is desperate. He says there are things that remain for you to be done. These are things that need to be repented of. I can see consistent themes throughout the churches I've pastored. There are, there are the challenges or the, the need to pursue New Testament unity and diversity. There is the need for Sabbath keeping, not legalism in regard to what you do on the Lord's Day, but making it special, setting it aside, resting your body on it, and worshiping corporately in it. It's a consistency. The sacrificial giving hindered by consumer debt and evangelism. The church, even the evangelical church across America is not growing by adult conversions. Neither is this one. Every church in America, including ours, must grow in this, this, this growth of this discipline, this duty this response to God's grace of inviting other people to follow the Savior. I just ask you to think about, look around this sanctuary in your mind's eye. Any member of the, any member of the church, any leader of the church and ask, who is here because I have invited them, I've brought them? Who is here as a believer because I led them to Christ outside of this church and they have come? This is not an an opportunity to to beat us up and make us feel bad. This is Jesus coming to us and saying, you have the good news. Make much of it. Be bold in your witness. So what is the solution? What is the solution to if, if if you're not waking up, if you're living disobediently and adequately in any of these areas, if your church is, what is the solution? Do I just pronounce the benediction now so that you go home, feel bad about yourselves, or go home and say, beat yourselves up and Jesus will love you more? If you just try harder, no, it's not the solution that Jesus gives. See verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Remember. 
Remember what? Remember the gospel. Remember how you came to him originally. You realized that you were a sinner. You, remember, you realized that you deserved hell. You asked him to give you his righteousness and he gave it in the, in the substitution for your sin. And you received salvation. What did you do? You obeyed the gospel. To obey the gospel in the Bible is to obey the command, receive the gift. Obey the command to receive the gift. That's the first step of obedience. It is to believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So he says, the first step to waking up is to remember how you were saved. Keep it, obey it. Repent, turn around from what you're trusting in. Turn around from your laziness. Turn around from your stubbornness. Turn around and look at Jesus and receive afresh his love, his mercy, his grace, which will motivate you, empower you to live out the mandate of the gospel. Let me just mention quickly in passing one resource to help you remember the gospel because we must remember, we must, make, we must make an effort to remember the gospel because it is counterintuitive to everything about us. Here it is, and I forgot to remind the bookstore that I was going to mention this book, so they'll get it to you eventually. But Milton Vincent's book, A Gospel Primer, Milton Vincent, A Gospel Primer, it's a short little book. It's a, it's, 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 a, it's a strong dose of gospel vitamins. Every day you turn the page and each day it will remind you of a different aspect of the gospel, a different facet of that beautiful diamond. The first part is in prose. The second part is in poetry. Let me just read to you what Milton Vincent says in conclusion of the poetic section. God does see my sins and he grieves at them so for when I'm sinning his love I don't know. So this is my story, ongoing it is. How shall I thank God for this gospel of his? A gift that keeps giving the gospel confers the bounty of heaven each time I rehearse. Deserve it? I don't on my holiest day but this is salvation and herein I'll stay. We need to remember that every day. It will wake us up. But once we're awake, we have to walk. We obey by receiving the gospel, and we continue to receive the gospel as we respond to it with gratitude. This is what is tragically missing in the, in the church at Sardis. He says in verse 4, you still have... A few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, why does he talk about walking in white? Because they have Jewish origins, and they were, they were accustomed to the priestly garments that distinguished those who led them, and they were, they were accustomed to their distinct garments that reflected their Jewish tradition. And he said, uh, it's not enough for you to put on the outward, uh, the outward accoutrements of your religion. It's not enough just to go to church. It's not enough just to act like you're a, a Christian. You must live it out. The way you will be properly clad, the way you will be properly clothed is by walking in fidelity to me. 
walking faithfully with me, obeying my word, obeying my commands. Now, inevitably, that's going to lead to sacrifice. It's going to lead to persecution. Now, how do I know that? Because he says, when you walk with me in white, I will count you worthy. It does not mean that if you, if you walk with him the right way, you will earn your salvation, you will earn praise. It means rather that when you walk with him, when you identify with Christ, when you stand up for him, when you live distinctly for him, when you love people who are supposed to be your enemies, when you think differently from the culture around you, when you express yourself differently from the, the particular political party that you are aligned with or the societal group that you're in, when you think differently, when you speak differently, act differently, and you're persecuted for that, those are scars that you will bear out of love for Christ, and someday he will view them, and he will call them worthy. How do I know that that's what that means? Because that's the hymn we're going to sing to Jesus. Worthy, worthy is the lamb who what? Was slain. Why is he worthy? Because he, was, he suffered and was slain in our behalf. That's why we ascribe worth to him. That's why we will praise him. That's why we'll adore him because we look on his scars and we see those scars were taken on him not because I deserved it, not to earn my favor, which wouldn't make any difference to him anyway. They were, they were earned by him in order to gain my salvation. And the believer in love with the Savior is one who wants to present scars to him and say, this is how much I loved you. Now, how does that happen? How did it happen in the early church? How did it happen? How did, how did the first century church, how was it as exciting as the book of Acts records it to be? You ever read the book of Acts and you say, man, things were happening around the, around the place. 3,000 souls added. People, people uh, spreading the gospel. The church spreading like a flame. How did that happen? How did they turn the world upside down? How did the first century church in a Roman culture with everybody against them, with a monolithic Roman culture, how did the church of Jesus Christ get not only a, a toehold, but revolutionize the world? Well, very smart people have, have figured that out. Church historians, experts in first century Christianity like Michael Green and and F.F. F. Bruce and Larry Hurtado study the first century church, and they've come up, it seems to me, with a, a couple of distinctions. I added a third one by the time I got to the pulpit in the last service. I haven't come up with a fourth one yet, but the, there's two main things that I had while I was writing this sermon, and then third I'll get to in a minute. There are two reasons, there are two questions that the first century church asked about everything they encountered, every worldview, every ethical decision, every duty, they asked two questions, and by answering those two questions faithfully, the church spread and they got killed. What were those two questions? The first one was, what does the Bible say? 
They were, as Larry Hurtado said, they, are, they became people of the book. Now, that was revolutionary because, <clears throat> because religions were not religions of one book. They had lots of books. They had various philosophers. They had books of spells. They had books of gods and goddesses. They had lots of different books. But here Christianity comes along and says we have one book. It's the Bible. It's the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments. And this is our book. And we will all subscribe to it no matter what, even if it means losing our lives, losing our incomes, losing our businesses. The first century church historians who are the church historians who are experts in the first century point to one primary manifestation of people being of one book, and that was the multi-ethnicity of the church at the very beginning. How do those things go together? Because each people had a different deity. The Etruscans had a god, the Asians had a god, the North Africans had gods, the Greeks had gods, the Romans developed new gods. So people groups had different deities. But here's something revolutionary. Jesus Christ came, said he's the Lord over heaven and earth and over all peoples. And he, he laid down his life for Gentile and Jew. And he shed his blood for Gentile and Jew. And he shed his blood in order to make of the many one, the two, one new man, new woman. And to bring them into one church and to demonstrate to the world the unifying, reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, rev- it, was, it caught the world by storm. It was breathtaking. It was totally unusual. The second question that they asked was, what does the cross of Jesus Christ require? Because they understood that on the cross, Jesus committed, performed the ultimate self-sacrifice for unworthy people. He was sinless. He was in fellowship with his father. We were rebels. We were enemies. And Jesus gave himself for us. He paid the price of his body, of his blood, of, his, of enduring hell for us in order to reconcile us to God. So the Christian said, if that's what Jesus did for us, and if Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, it, it means then that in every situation I'm to ask, not just what does the Bible say, implicitly or explicitly, but what is required of me, and how is it going to manifest itself in sacrifice? My duty to Jesus, my servant's my service to somebody else is not, going to be, is not going to be reputable. It's not going to be complete if it's not imitative of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You know where that came out primarily in the first century church? In its sex ethic of all things. Sex in the first century was viewed as something to be consumed, something that you used another person for to gratify in yourself. But Christianity came along and it said something very differently. What does the, Bible, what does the book say? It says... The two shall become one flesh. A man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his. A marriage should be between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible says. And then it says that sex should not only be experienced within the context of the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman. 
The Christians began teaching that you may not have sex with somebody else unless you've stood before a group of witnesses and vowed that you would love this person until you die. It was amazing. It, it, revel, it, was the, it was probably the greatest tool, scholars say, of undermining the Roman Empire in its paganism. The sex ethic based on self-sacrifice. Now, how does it apply? How would that apply? If that's, if that's what it takes to be a church that distinguishes itself as one with whom Jesus is pleased... One who says they have not soiled their garments. One who walk with me. Ones whom I count worthy because they are willing for that kind of, to take those kinds of radical obedient steps, even if it puts them out of accord with everybody else. It costs them money. It costs them social prestige. What does it look like applied today? This is where we're, we're pulling off. This is where we're not speaking in with the good news into our culture. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best news. But our, our culture is being ripped apart by its divisions. And there is no one, it seems, few churches, few people willing to step forward and say, to ask those questions, what does the Bible teach and what does a self-sacrificial cross-like life require of me in this situation? Let me apply it to two issues that are in the recent news that are examples of what's ripping our culture apart. And let me show you by those two questions how it would make a difference. We have the recent shooting of a young African-American man by a white female police officer. And there's another instance in New Mexico of a Hispanic man killing, a Hispanic man who was a drug dealer killing a state trooper, shooting him multiple times with an assault rifle. Now, what is being said to, what is being spoken to those situations by our culture? We only take one side or the other. There is, there is the immediate assumption of guilt by one party or the other, or the immediate damning of one part or the other. And if you refuse to vindicate one or the other, or if you refuse to damn one or the other, then you yourself will be damned. What good news, what better news does Christianity have to offer in those two horrible situations? If we cannot speak into the hardest situation, the ugliest, the thorniest problems of this world, then the gospel doesn't deserve a hearing. So even if we step into it imperfectly, we must step into it with these two questions that the first century church was asking. So let's just ask, what's a biblical, what does the Bible say about those two, situ two very different situations? One officer killing another, 
one uh, person being pulled over killing an officer? What does the Bible say about this? What is the one thing we can say? We could say many things. We could, we could cover many topics. But what does the Bible say about those situations? The very first principle that must be articulated because it is the principle that has been articulated in every social movement that has made any significant change in cultural situations like us, like ours, is this biblical principle found in Genesis 1, that every human being is made in the image of God. It is the principle that that led to the formation of our justice system. It's a principle that led to the abolition of slavery worldwide. It is the principle that led to the reformation of, of uh, labor laws in, uh, in 19th century England. It is the, it is the, it is the principle that led to, that, that was the foundation of Martin Luther King's work in pursuing civil rights. That men and women are created in the image of God. It hasn't always been applied perfectly but that is the first principle. Every human being is made in the image of God. This is what we can say about this current situation. There are four people that we have been, have been um, referred to in those situations. And I just took a scan of the news articles, recent news coverage of these and other things. And I noticed that this, this is often mentioned, often missed, the names of the people. Each one has a name. Dante Wright, Kim Potter, Omar Cueva, Darian Jarrett. We could say the same about the, the, uh, the, the, the killings in the massage parlors in, in Atlanta. Each of them had a name. Robert Long, Sun Chung Park, Elsius, Hernandez Ortiz. Each one had a name. Each one was conceived by a mom and dad, knitted together in his or her mother's womb, born a helpless baby. Each one grew up as both a, a victim of some things and making willful choices about many others. Regardless of drug convictions, illegal gun permits, or racism, those facts remain. Dante, Kim, Omar, and Darian are human beings made in the image of God and they are either dead or they may wish they were. They have families and friends who are in unspeakable anguish. That anguish resulting from the original fall, evil choices, mental illness, broken families, drug abuse, misused firearms, racism, and a million other results of sin makes Jesus weep. Many other things about, from Scripture could be said about Injustice or justice, civil authority, public health, child nurture, honoring the body. But few, if anybody, is starting with that first most basic principle. These are human beings made in the image of God. It should drive the rest of our actions relative to these tragedies. The second question that the first century asked as what does the cross of Christ demand from us? The ultimate self-sacrifice for undeserving people, it requires two things from us. It, pray, it, it requires, the Bible says, to pray for mercy rather than to nurture vengeance. And it means to pursue shalom, the biblical concept of total peace and human flourishing, rather than to hoard our blessings. 
What tends to happen in these tragedies? There is revenge. There is a vengeful spirit against young black men, against law enforcement, against white power structures, against drug dealers, against gun owners, against politicians, and on and on. It doesn't mean that there's no place for righteous indignation. There is. But vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our role is to pray for mercy rather than to nurture and nurse vengeance. Then there is the requirement to pursue shalom. We don't just pray. We have to put feet to our faith. And what made the church a threat to the Roman Empire was compelling, compassionate action. These Christians, they said, are not only feeding their poor, but feeding ours. They're burying our dead as well as their own. We'll never get any traction against them because their compassion is totally distinct. If we want to get a name for Jesus in response to his grace, we will do something. I'm not going to prescribe what you do. It doesn't mean a very particular ministry of this church. It may be something that's never been envisioned. But it'll be things like education and health care and family support and public advocacy and job programs and, and child nurture. But especially evangelism. Sharing the good news verbally with somebody else who doesn't know it. Moving into our neighborhoods, knowing our neighbors and speaking boldly the message of Christ and inviting them to something that is infinitely more beautiful than they know right now. I said there was a third reason that the church, the first century church thrived. Third reason I mentioned last week, but it's also in view here. Jesus promises that when you're united to him, he'll never blot your name out of his book. He'll confess you before his father and before his angels. He will say, the one who is not ashamed of me, I will acknowledge before my father. The third question the early church asked, and we will ask if we will be a transformative influence in this culture is, what do I want Jesus to say about me at the great day? And if I peg my focus on what I want Jesus to say of me at the great day, it will not matter what anybody else says or what anybody else does, even if it means taking our lives. Something like this. When I was an eighth grader, I was pulled up to play varsity basketball. Not because I was a great player, but because I went to a small school. They were desperate for players. Now, my basketball career thus far from being a toddler through middle school was that it was a non-contact sport. That's why I chose it. I was told, I tried football, I didn't like it, it hurt. Football hurt, especially in the positions they put me in, catching the ball over the middle and two people hitting you. I said, enough, who wants that? (laughs) Basketball, non-contact sport, they said. They lied to me, they told me there's no no contact sport. Well, that had been my experience through eighth grade, but then I got to varsity. Eighth graders are targets in high school basketball. I was. They loved to elbow me, throw me down, 
Move me out of the way. Run over me. And then, then the people who ran our school noticed that our, our new concrete floor was too slick, so they, they had the brilliant idea of repainting it and mixing sand in the paint. It greatly improved the traction and tore off huge shards of skin at the same time. So I learned as an eighth grader how to avoid contact, avoid pain, and also how to stay off the floor. We had our first victory. And we got in the locker room and the coach was giving the the post-game speech and he was praising the players and the first stringers were sitting around in the chairs of honor and their knees were bloody and their elbows were bloody and their noses were bloody and they they had bruises all around them. And the coach said, I'm so proud of you. You sacrificed. You threw yourselves on the floor to get those loose balls. You took those licks and we had victory. And they'd wipe the blood off and they'd say, yeah, coach. That's what we did. They were hungry for victory. And I looked at my uniform, which was spotless. (laughs) And my knees were as beautiful as a man's could be at that time. Elbows, no blood. There's no blood anywhere outside my body. And I was ashamed. I determined I would never again go into the locker room, in the home court anyway without blood on my knees and elbows and a dirty uniform. Jesus will stand at the great day and hold out the scars and say, come to me. You're the one for whom I I took these scars. Show me yours. And on that day, Do you think he'll say the well done to those who have managed to avoid any loss, any sacrifice, any distinction by not fitting into any extreme of the culture, but bears the scars of speaking up for, living for Jesus, even if it costs you everything? Those are the ones he'll say, you're worthy. Let's respond strongly to that grace, praying for the courage we need from the gospel itself. Let's begin praying right now. Our Lord Jesus, we say to you as a people, a cowardly proud pastor, and the people who, well, none of us enjoys suffering. None of us enjoys loss or limitation or scorn or reviling. But focus our eyes on that great day. And give us the fruit of labor, of seeing our world changed by living radically according to these two questions. What does the Bible say? And what does a cross of Christ require? Oh Lord, strengthen us. Revive us from our deadness individually or as a church. 
calls us to walk completely with you. Regard us as worthy. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.